0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, everybody, today's episode is brought to you by Tyrant Books, publisher of Pets, an anthology. It's edited by Jordan Castro. It features fiction, poetry, and essays about pets, ranging from cats and dogs. To an ex racehorse and dead chickens. Contributors include Ann Beatty, Christine Scutt, Tao Lin, Scott McClanahan, Chelsea Hodson, Sarah Manguso, and more. Pets in an Anthology, available now from Tyrant Books. Hello. How's it going out there? I'm Brad Listy. This is The Other People Show. I'm in Los Angeles. Hi. How are you? Hello. I have Meredith Toulousen on the program today. She is the author of an acclaimed memoir called Ferris that is available now from Viking. Meredith Toulousen is an award-winning author and journalist who has written for The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Guardian, Wired... Condé Nast Traveler, and more. She is also the founding executive editor of Them, which is Condé Nast's L- LGBTQ digital platform, where she is currently contributing editor. I had a very fascinating conversation with Meredith Toulouse, and that is coming up soon. Today's episode is brought to you by Doubleday, publisher of the novel *Pizza Girl* by Jean Keong Frazier. *Pizza Girl* is a wildly original coming-of-age story about a pregnant pizza delivery girl who becomes obsessed with one of her customers. Named a most anticipated book of 2020 by Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, L Time Magazine, People, BuzzFeed, Bustle, and more. The New York Times Book Review calls Pizza Girl fresh, funny, and bittersweet. Pizza Girl by Jean Keong Frazier. Available now from Doubleday. Go get your copy. So another Sunday episode here in the uh, heart of summer. I hope you're having a good 4th of July weekend. I hope you're taking care of yourselves. I hope you're wearing a mask. I hope you're registering to vote, you know, all that stuff. Wear sunscreen. (laughs) I'm concerned about you. I want you to uh, be well. We are living through. uh, just a, it's remarkable. We're at the halfway point though. We're at the halfway point of 2020. The easy half is over. I think. Anyway, here's a podcast for you. Here's a conversation that I think uh, will help to uh, entertain you and uh, enlighten you a little bit. Meredith Toulousen is my guest. Her new memoir is called Ferris It is out there now from Viking. And uh, it was just delightful to meet her and to talk to her and to uh, learn a little bit about her life and her work and all the rest. So here she is, folks. This is Meredith Toulousen, and her memoir, One More Time, is called Fairest.
1: I feel like that sense of mission has evolved over time. You know, I I came of age writing, you know, opinion pieces and doing journalism on the internet. And my first big investigative piece, um, this, um, and actually it's a series of investigative pieces on the murder of Jennifer Laude, who was a trans woman in the Philippines who was murdered by a US Marine um, that while I was doing all of that investigative work I was all I was in the middle of my own you know sort of like personal turmoil around um, being in grad school at Cornell um, and experiencing harassment there and finding that, um, that the administration was more willing to protect or to preserve, Um, what they perceived to be the rights of the person who was harassing me than than my um, particular rights. And so I feel like that experience definitely imbued my work, especially in the beginning, with this really clear sense of political mission that um, it was really important for um, people to know about what trans people go through Um, and that because I felt really powerless at the time to do anything about my own situation that I decided that the best way for me to funnel my frustration is to try to tell the stories of other people and use whatever talents and resources I have to be able to bring Trans issues to light to the broader public. But I think that by the time that I started to conceive fairest, you know, which was around early 2017, by that point, one of the things that I realized was that doing so much of this political writing, doing so much writing that was tied to the news, ended up feeling reactive in a way that actually was wearing me down and wearing down my soul in the sense that it didn't really give me a lot of opportunity to tell my story um, apart from all of those pressures from the outside world. And that's something that that's something that is a really typical experience for a lot of trans people. It's very hard for us, to actually figure ourselves out um, on our own terms, because of the fact that society is consistently bearing down on us. And I think that the one of the primary missions that I had in this book, is to try to give myself that space, so that hopefully other trans people can also have that space in the future. And also people who are not trans can understand why giving us that space is important.
0: Mm, yeah. And I mean, you like, you were talking about uh, writing, you know, like a mode of reactivity. And I was thinking about the news cycle generally. And like, I think I feel a sense of uh, sympathy for journalists who are trying to cover the news in this era, just because things happen so fast. And then to be someone who is on, this particular beat and who is a trans person, um, you know, trying to navigate the world, both professionally and personally, like if you're writing in a state of reactivity, it, it, there's so much to react to it, it, I can, I can imagine feeling punch drunk, trying to keep up with it and, um, you know, constantly have a take.
1: Right. I mean, I, when Caitlyn Jenner came out in the summer of 2015, I counted, I wrote 17 articles just on Caitlyn Jenner alone. Um, because what ended up happening was there was this opportunity, this big public figure came out as trans, and everybody was interested in her. And in my head, it was just like, oh, okay, great. Like she can be a conduit for discussing all of these translated issues, right? So I ended up, you know, writing you know, and and such a diverse array of articles on that issue. And I felt like I had I really had the energy at the time, you know, because I because in 2015 especially there were very, very few trans journalists who were writing for a general audience, right? The fact that um you know the fact that The Guardian um was you know was good enough to want me to write for them during that period, as well as other, you know, like a bunch of other outlets that were geared not, you know, not specifically to the queer community, made me feel a a real sense of purpose to be able to communicate these issues to the world. And in a way, it also paved the way for this type of work that I'm doing now, the book, because, you know, we've come to a point where I feel like, you know, like the trans 101 has been, you know, for the most part, you know, laid out. the The canvas has been, you know, has been prepared, and I feel like it's really time to for us to be able to relay the the fine nuance that nuances of our stories, right?
0: Hmm, absolutely, and you have quite a story, uh, not just as a trans person who has wrestled with issues uh, of gender and identity, but as a person who has traveled far geographically and who has come a long way in terms of um, socioe- you know, socioeconomic status, um, like it's an unlikely story and it's uh, a story of unique triumph. Um, do you, I guess, do you recognize that? You must have a sense of how far you've come.
1: I do there are definitely moments when I feel that, right um and and it's a very odd feeling because in a way um even though you know even though it's a really difficult situation to be in, to be constantly surrounded by people who did not who do not typically come from. The place and the and the class and you know all of these other identity categories that I come from, but at the same time I also feel a certain lightness that I don't have those expectations. Um, you know, like n- people as soon as I got into Harvard, um, you know, like I feel like everybody around me, I I had already exceeded everybody's expectations and so in a certain way i have um you know that's one good thing about the journey that i've been on is that is that whatever happens is it's i don't feel that burden i don't feel the weight of expectation um
0: you're not like a Winkle, you're not like a winklevoss
1: <laughs> right right well you know in my book my you know like my ex-partner is a wedgwood who you know like who comes from, you know, generations of, of excellence and, you know, the Wedgwood China Company and Rafe, you know, Rafe von Williams descended directly from Darwin. And I've, and I've seen how much that weighed on him, you know, the, the, the fat, the, the desire to continue a family legacy of excellence. Um, and I don't have that. And, you know, that's been, that's been really, freeing um and and i don't know and and yet at the same time it can be lonely right um i there have been time and it's lonely because because both because there aren't other people around a lot of the time who are experiencing who are experiencing similar things but i think it can also be lonely because i don't necessarily have models i don't even have precedents um so and i'm the type of person who takes a lot of comfort in reading about other people's lives and identifying with people um and so so that's also been um sometimes a little bit difficult and strange
0: Hmm. a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So for people listening who haven't had a chance to read, like, let's maybe do a little bit of biography. You were born in the Philippines.
1: I was born in the Philippines. I was born in um, an area called... Um, San Rafael Bulacan, which is um, the province directly north of Manila. Um, And it's a, you know, it's a really rural place, less so now. Um, Metro Manila has sort of crept up a little bit. Um, But when I was there, you know, it was all rice paddies and fields and um, I grew up in a hamlet of 500 people, and I'm albino. Um, that's very relevant because I was the only light-skinned, blonde-haired person um, for miles around. I mean, I was the only I was the only light-skinned, blonde-haired person I knew until I became a child star um, when I was seven. Um, and ended up playing
0: <laughs> and, and I don't mean to laugh, but like I mean this is a, it's an incredible story to me like this uh, like e- even like if you just stopped at like uh, you know, born in the Philippines, albino child star, you know, it's I already know. incredible,
1: yeah, it's it's pretty, yeah, it's all pretty incongruous. so basically, yes, I became the there's one I knew of one albino person in the Philippines, his name is Redford White. Um, and he is a comedian and they were casting somebody to play his kid. And I went into this audition um, and I've always had a good memory. And the director noticed that I learned lines really fast. So he cast me. So I was, um, you know, like I was like the kid on a sort of like Full House or Cosby show show type show for a few years until, um, that ended. And I refused to act in like a regular show because I was a big nerd and it was interfering with my, um, with my nerdy studies. And, um, and then my family ended up moving to the U S when I was 15. Um, because my grandfather was my maternal grandfather had immigrated to the U.S. and petitioned us. And, um, and yeah, and two years later, I ended up getting accepted to Harvard. Um, while at Harvard, I ended up, and um, this was before my gender, gender transition, so I um, identified as a gay man. And uh, during that period, I ended up, um, in a uh, in my senior year and for four years after um, in a serious loving relationship with a gay man who also happened to be an the heir to a baronetry, tree um, and he's now a baronet um and and yeah uh, I don't know I don't know what else to tell you. Uh, there, there are just, and then I transitioned, and that's when the book ends. There are more things that happened after that, but I figured, you know, I should end it there. There's, there's <laughs> I think, I think
0: there's plenty to unpack. I think we, <laughs> you've given us yeah. lots to talk about. So, um, you're born as a, I want to go back to childhood a little bit in the Philippines because, um, like, first of all, uh, the the presence of your grandmother. Um yes. and how loving she was and how, um, like from from the jump, you know, believed that you were kind of uh, this golden child and, I think in particular for a child who, um, you know is dealing with um, a, a sense of otherness, you know, with albinism. And, uh, and then on, you know, on down the line into the future with, uh, gender stuff and sexuality, like to have a loving adult presence who is there for you from the start and believes in you. And I don't know that resonated with me. I have a disabled child and, uh, it's not a one for one comparison, obviously, but I think a lot about otherness and I think a lot about like him coming into awareness of, the differences that he has uh physically and so on uh we're not there yet but it's coming and i don't know i found it very touching your grandmother so can you tell us a little bit more about what she was like and your relationship with her
1: yeah my grandmother um was definitely the person that i was closest to growing up i she really my both of my parents had me when they were very young Um, And they didn't actually want to get married and I don't think they wanted to have me. Um, And, you know, but this was the Philippines, which is a very Catholic country where um, divorce actually is still illegal and abortion is definitely illegal. Um, And so, and so they never really made me feel loved um, growing up. Right. Um, And so, having somebody in my life who felt that way about me um, was definitely really important, but also enforced, like really kind of like rigidly enforced this idea that, you know, I am not freakish, I am or abnormal, I am special, um, which is a really interesting, you know, which is a really interesting hinge to sort of like base a child's, self-esteem on and this was actually true as well um after i transitioned um whenever i visited she was the person who you know like if anybody used my old name she's she was the person who would say no like her name is meredith um and but there are flip sides to that as well right just because one of the things that i realized as i grew into adulthood is that part of the reason why um, she loved me so much was because she herself was a, was a really dark woman um, and that there was something that she she coveted about whiteness, right And that was something that was a there was a sense that she um, she passed on to me that I now have to um, contend with, really, you know like how do you as an adult, um, find a way to simultaneously feel good about yourself as a person when you know that part of the reason why you feel good about yourself as a person is predicated on centuries of Eurocentrism um, and you know and white colonialism, right? Um, and that that other people from your community don't have the same sense of self esteem in part because of that history. So that's one of the things that, you know, that I, that I contend with in the book, but that I also, um, contend with in my daily life really. Um, and, but yeah, but, you know, but at the same time, there's, I, you know, there's no doubt that she was a really, really influential figure in my life and I actually didn't want to go to America um because it meant leaving her uh and uh she convinced me to go uh but I still i <laughs> despite the many many decades uh, I still I still will probably always feel ambivalent about being here
0: mm, yeah right especially now I feel like this this uh country's gotten pretty it seems like the country's getting just like steadily more and more insane
1: that's the feeling I have anyway right right um well the thing is that, you know, the Philippines has Rodrigo Duterte, who is not um who's not who's isn't necessarily the the paragon of sanity either. <laughs>
0: I was gonna say, I was gonna say we could have a competition almost between our right. guy and you you know
1: So so yeah, so that but at the same time but at the same time it's kind of uh it's it's uh it's a form of um it's a It's a form of uh of social behavior that is more legible to me in a lot of ways than Trump's behavior and the other thing I was actually gonna say um that I realized I didn't get the opportunity to say is that it wasn't just my grandmother, but also like my entire community, right, who reinforced that notion that I was special, but also. Since we're talking about disability, I think disability culture in the Philippines is really, really different. Um, there's actually no word, no indigenous word in Tagalog for disabled. You know, so you're just blind, or you know, or deaf, or you have whatever condition you have. But there's not, um, you know, like there isn't a really strong sense that you're incapable. I think disabled people. Are more easily integrated into um, communities in the Philippines. At least that was my that was my experience growing up. The people, you know, the people were just like, "Oh, okay, I guess you need to like sit on the floor to be able to sit, you know, to to be able to see the blackboard." Um, that's just, you know, that's just kind of the way it is. And um, and also, the states is a much more individualistic culture. Um, when I was growing up in the Philippines, other kids didn't have to be prompted to help me whenever I had problems, you know, whenever I couldn't see or anything like that. Um, and And I think that makes a really big
0: difference. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just want Mm -hmm. to make sure that people at home are following along. And this is actually something that I was not aware of. Um, I probably should have been, but with albinism, um, there is a, a visual component, um, you know, like you ha- you see things in uh, two dimension. Is that correct? Can you describe your your vision?
1: There, there are a couple of visual components, and it's convenient that I actually that I actually was a technical assistant at a vision lab at MIT, so I can actually, um, I can actually answer this question both uh, as an albino person, but also as a um, as a scientist, which is that which is that. Um, there are a couple of there are a couple of um, eye issues, vision issues that albino people usually experience. The first is that our foveas, which is like the central part of our eye, um, is usually not as developed as um, as people without albinism. So that means that we're our eyes are a lot more sensitive to light, um, and also be that we can't. Our central vision, um, which is what people use to focus and what people usually, you know, like use to be able to really see things, um, is less developed uh, than non-albino people. But the other thing that we experience is nystagmus, which means that um, because there's a there's a neurological condition associated with albinism, which means that our eyes are always moving. Um, And we're actually we actually always see double, except that our brains are so robust that you that it actually automatically resolves that image into one. Um, But at the same time, we don't have regular stereo vision because our eyes are actually tracking separately And whenever we talk about the fact that we see double, at least for me, whenever I talk about the fact that I see two images all the time, I start seeing the two images all the time. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Until, until like a few, yes, yeah, because, because I focus on it, you know, like I, it's sort of like how when you, I don't know if you find this, but when people start who have, who come from places with pronounced accents when they start talking about those places like southerners when they start talking about like their childhoods in the south they start speaking in that drawl right um it's similar for me that when i start talking about my vision i actually see the aspects of it that my brain usually resolves yeah Hmm.
0: so i want to go back for just a moment here to this concept of being special and to your grandmother um kind of communicating this to you, to the community around you, kind of, it seems like communicating this to you and to get your thoughts with the benefit of hindsight on whether or not, um, this was a good thing or a healthy thing. Like, do you think it was a positive for you to, uh, have thing have things characterized this way? Or do you think that it somehow created, um, like an unhealthy sense of expectation?
1: I think it was a net positive, in terms of my development as an individual, certainly, right? Um, I was able to surmount challenges that a lot of albino kids find difficult to deal with. Um, I was able to have like a really stable sense of self. Um, I I excelled in school, right? Um, but at the same time, it it did come with a whole set of difficulties and disadvantages, right? Um, One of them is that, one of them is that it's still in certain ways, like hard for me to relate to people um, because I spent so much time as a child, really, you know, like really um, holding on to this idea that, um, that I was special And that, you know, and that I could hold off on all of the negative feelings that I have if only I attached myself to this idea that I was special, that I did really well in school, et cetera, et cetera. But as an adult, um, that type of person is actually very difficult to be friends with. You know, I was extremely competitive, you know, like really not. A very, you know, like not particularly supportive of other people. Um, And it took me a really long time to figure that out and to figure out that, um, to figure out that I had coping mechanisms as a kid that I didn't actually need, not only that that I didn't need them as an adult, but they actually weren't serving me at all. Hmm. So
0: um, you talk about being competitive and i think of uh, like the academic excellence and getting to harvard especially seems especially impressive you know starting from a, a village of 500 people in the philippines uh, but it also you know in reading the section of your book that deals with early childhood you know your intellect and your um, you, you know your abilities as a student seem to have been present right from the jump like you were always you know you were reading early on you were interested in Astronomy. I was kind of like reflecting on my own childhood. I was like, I don't know if I was I don't know if I was really that curious or, or tuned in, but you seem to have been that way from basically from the from the cradle.
1: Yeah, I think I was I but at the same time there were expectations around me, right? Um and, and it's really interesting to ask those types of questions, you know, like what what precedes what, right? Um, and it's also it's also a really gendered question. I didn't have to do any chores when I was a kid, you know, like I only needed to study um and and had I been raised as a girl, that certainly wouldn't have been true. um but I think that um I was very positively reinforced for my precociousness as a kid, um but that also. It was, I, I, you know, I'm sure that I did have a certain amount of innate capacity, but that was also enhanced by the fact that, that because I had such a chaotic family life and felt like my parents didn't really love me, my schoolwork was really the only aspect of my life that I can, f- that I felt like I could fully control, right? Um, because also during that period, my mom um, was really insistent on um, me living with her. Um, so I lived with her from the time I was seven until the t- until I was 12, which were really, really miserable years, um, both in terms of you know, there aren't child labor laws in the Philippines. So, you know, like I had to tape TV shows past midnight three times a week while also going to regular school um, while never actually seeing any of the money that I earned um, because my mom was addicted to gambling. And so that was what she used my earnings for. Um, And so, so... the the schoolwork and the doing well in school and the reading and the learning English, they were ways for me to cope, you know, because, because those were things that I knew that I was good at that nobody could take away from me. Um, and that was something that that continued through Harvard um, and still, you know, like in, in – some ways like whenever I'm whenever I'm in a you know it's part of the reason why there's been a lot of discussion around productivity um in during the pandemic um and and even though I think that it's that we have to sort of like think about our activities beyond productivity that actually like us framing the things that we're doing in terms of productivity itself is already a problem. Um, but the fact of the matter is that, is that if you want to look at my activities, I'm actually overproductive, um, in this particular, in this particular situation, because from the earliest age, the way that I dealt with chaos was by working. Um, and, uh, And thankfully now I know, you know, like one of the things that I realize is, is that excess labor can be funneled towards helping other people. So that's something that I'm really trying to do at this moment, knowing that so many people find it so hard to work, right? Hmm. And what about your
0: dad? Like, how did he factor in when you were, you know, during, especially during this, uh, the early childhood?
1: My dad was really absent. During, during that period of time, he was dealing with his own issues. I think in retrospect, at least the, what I've been able to piece together over time is that he just felt like getting married to my mom really ruined his life, right? Like he, was, he had really good prospects. He was, you know, a scholarship student in a prestigious, um, in arguably Ateneo, arguably um, the philippines most pre- prestigious private school um and you know getting married to my mom really delay- derailed um his life and so he was largely absent from my existence really up until um up until i went to college um and then and then that has always been a fraught relationship between us because of the fact that I've never actually fully known the degree to which he loves me or he loves the fact that I went to Harvard or that he loved me after I got into Harvard. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a very, you know, that's a really fraught part of our relationship. And the other fraught part of our relationship is that my dad is undoubtedly an extremely, extremely intelligent person. He was, he very much had a really similar trajectory to me before he was forced to be married to my mom. Um, and so, you know, and so I think he finds it very difficult to see how successful, um, quote unquote successful I've become because he projects his own poss- the possibilities, the foreclosed possibilities, for his life um, because of the fact that he got married so young and had a kid so young. Mm.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's like, that's interesting. You would think, I guess, uh, in in a perfect world, a parent would be thrilled and celebrating their child's successes and the ways in which they have exceeded their own accomplishments, but it doesn't always work out that way. It can be deeply painful (laughs) for a parent uh, who might be, I don't know, lacking perspective or Uh, just dealing with like the anguish of, of regret.
1: Yeah. I mean, we've definitely, our relationship has had a lot of ups and downs. Um, it's in a slight upswing right now. Um, I, I had been estranged from him since 2000, let me think 12 or 13, maybe. Um, but I got married recently. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and I had a party um, in the Philippines for people who couldn't come to the wedding, which was in the U.S. And I I saw him in a group situation that was like our, you know, kind of like first um, interaction, which was which was fine. You know, like he seems to be doing better. Um, but I think those issues are always going to be there. It's going to be it's just it's just tough. It's tough for both of us. And I think um, and even though especially having written the book, you know, like I think one of the things that spending so much time with your life gives you is a sense of perspective, right. And the ability to identify the problems Um, because all of these problems are, you know, like they go both ways. Right. Um, But it's one thing to be able to identify a problem consciously. It's another, it's a whole other challenge to be able to, you know, to be able to let go of all of the unconscious resentments and be able to, you know, be able to break through all of those unconscious barriers. And I think that's probably the next step in, in our relationship. And, and also my relationship with my mom, who I've been estranged from for even longer. so. Hmm. And uh, do you have, um, like, do do you have a sense of
0: whether or not they've read the book or do you have any sense of um, um, like their response to um, like gender transition and the the shifts in um, your identity over the years?
1: My dad has always been really supportive of both, my gender transition and me coming out as gay earlier. Um, And so it's been this super ironic thing that whenever I tell people that I'm estranged from my dad, people assume that it's because I'm trans, but it actually has nothing to do with that. He. You're, you're like been. you're you're like he's just
0: mad at me because I went to Harvard,
1: <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. Like it's just like the the Harvard competition thing, right? Um. And it, and it, and it's it yeah. Like it's it's funny to say that, but it is actually kind of true in a way. Um. That that part of the, our sort of like lingering resentment towards each other is. His expectation that I respect him as a father, um, which is very important in a Filipino context, because families structures are a lot more hierarchical um, in a Filipino context. But um, and and my expectation that he respect me for the set the for all of the challenges that. I had gone through to be able to get to where I am. And in our interactions, those things, those two elements, you know, have a tendency to combust, you know, because he, he would say things like, you know, like, oh, well, if I, you know, like, if I had come to the US, um, you know, just, just at the same time as you, when I was your age, I would have been able to get to Harvard and be successful too, right? um which to me diminishes diminishes all of the sacrifices that I went through um and so and and yeah you know so those are those are very typical arguments um and him being a really smart person he tries to advise me on various topics um related to various things really you know related to various aspects of whatever I'm working on at the time but he doesn't have the Ivy League education, um, and so whatever I could be a good child and allow him to advise me, um, even though even though a lot of the things that he says are things that I either already know or don't have a lot to do with what I'm working on. Um, but it's too hard for me to do that because um, because because I resent too much the ways in which I had to go through what I went through to be able to get to where I am. And I don't feel like he appreciates that enough. Hmm. So
0: I want to ask you about the issue of luck. Um, It's coming into my mind because I'm listening to what you're uh, saying and I'm thinking about the story you tell in your book, and just the distance you've traveled and the hurdles you've had to overcome, uh, like, like an unusual uh, amount of obstacles and challenges, I think it's fair to say. Um, and it's a story in many ways of triumph, you know, to, to do what you've been able to do. It's extraordinary. And so I ask this question of people, like both on this show and just in my life, because it's an area of some confusion for me. Uh, when I think about things like, uh, you know, especially like ideas of conventional success, um, getting an Ivy league degree, having a good job, making a lot of money, you know, um, winning awards, you know, whatever, whatever it happens uh, to be, however it happens to manifest. And I wonder how much, uh, of a factor luck is in life versus, um, you know, somebody guiding their own destiny and working hard and, um, persevering, you know, all the things that, um, you know, especially I think in American culture, we, uh, we hold as high virtues and do you, have you thought about this? Like, do you reflect on your experience and think about this idea of luck at all, or do you see it more as uh, a matter of like personal gumption and uh, just kind of like, uh, you know, relentless perseverance?
1: I I have thought about this um, quite deeply, <laughs> because it's true that circumstance has played a really big role in my life. Um, and there are two things, two major things that I would say about it. One is that I do think that to some extent, the cliche of being prepared to be lucky um, has a certain amount of truth, right? Um, that... I have always been the type of person who would, who, who, if given a choice, will try to be excellent, right? Like we'll try to be the person who is, you know, like who is doing something differently, who is doing something that other people haven't done before. Um, whether or not those efforts are recognized. Um, and many times they're not, right? Right. Um, I was before I, you know, before I became a trans public figure, I was in a comparative literature PhD program. And I would have been perfectly fine, you know, like becoming a professor in a in a small college, not having any of whatever it is that people perceive me to be successful at. Um, but I always it's always been very clear to me that um that that it it's good for me to learn new things, to have new skills, to you know to be curious about things because you just never know um what opportunities will come your way so that when there became this huge influx of interest in trans issues and The Guardian ended up needing a columnist to write regularly on trans issues. I had at that point, like written a couple of, you know, articles for the American prospect and the nation. So similar, similar publications. And so I was the person who was asked to do that. And then subsequently, I was the person who was asked to be the first trans staff writer at BuzzFeed. And then, you know, which then led to me being the first trans person in executive position at Condé Nast, right? Um and those were all a matter of a matter of fortuitous circumstance, but also I was in the right position I, I put myself in the position of, of being able to take advantage of those opportunities. So that's one thing. Um but also the other thing that when you talk about luck, I think a lot about birth lottery. And I think a lot about the ways in which different people are are dealt different cards and different resources. And one of the things that um, I think makes my story unique is just the really, really stark um, and divergent combination of advantages and disadvantages yeah. that i ended up having right you know so first generation immigrant from the philippines but has you know like from the very beginning been identified as you know as having sort of like prodigy level intellect whatever however you want to you know like however you want to and i'm very suspicious of that but it's also true you know that i score very highly on I on IQ tests because I I've certainly taken them um, as many of them as a kid. What's Um, your, what what
0: was your IQ? Do you mind saying?
1: Oh, I've always tested somewhere between 135 and 140. Um, But I also, but there are also like certain um, tests in which I test like really, really far off the scale Um, like for instance, like my short term memory is apparently, you know, like I got things like, things like memorize a random combination of numbers. Apparently, you know, like I, I, I memorized so many of them, you know, when I did this recently because I was tested for ADHD, um, and, you know, and the person who was doing the testing was just like, okay, like, that's enough, like, you've already reached the end of the scale, There, there's actually, like, no more scale for you. So that's, you know, so that's sort of an example. Um, and that benefits me immensely, you know, like, I can hold a ton of information in my head that other people would have to write down, which is, which is a huge advantage as a journalist, if you're, you know, trying to balance all of these facts, right? Um, But then at the same time, you know, I'm trans, and I'm albino, and I have all of these visual problems. But at the same time, I'm perceived as white. um, And I'm also perceived as not trans. Um, And, you know, definitely earlier in my life, when I was in my 20s, was also perceived as conventionally beautiful. Um, And to some extent, still am, right. Um, And so I think that I I do think that those factors also influence my life um, in really important ways, right? Because I'm the person, and I think, especially in the context of the ideology of American diversity, where, you know, because of the fact that we live, we continue to live. In a deeply unjust society where minorities are structurally disadvantaged, um, the way in which our society makes up for that is by picking out specific members of minority groups who they can more easily incorporate into the into the elite class. Um, And I'm very easy to incorporate as somebody who, you know, like you don't need to make any sacrifices to hire me, even though I'm disabled, trans, and a first-generation Filipino person, because I will perform just as well as and possibly better than, um, than somebody you hire who does not come from those marginalized positions. But what happens to those people who have been oppressed and who have, who whose life outcomes have been negatively affected by all of the ways in which being a marginalized person in America affects you, right? Because that's the next step. Or maybe this is the half step that I refuse to be the person who is just like, oh, no, like, I just worked really hard. No, that's not true. Um, I'm easy to tokenize. I'm easy to incorporate and assimilate um, into these rooms and the only way that I can address my feelings of guilt about that is to speak openly about the about that dynamic, even when it has the potential to to alienate people who are in positions of power who might, withdraw opportunities from me that they would otherwise give me and i've just decided that that's um that's a risk i'm willing to take
0: Hmm. that's i think that's a really like uh deep perspective and i i I have to imagine too like do you ever think about things like fate do you ever think about like well i have some sense of destiny Uh, is that too far out there you know in terms of the role that you uh, are inhabiting and maybe a sense of responsibility or mission you might feel to take whatever um, you know whatever good fortune or the the ease with which you can be tokenized as you just described, um, and to try to parlay it into something that can be of benefit to a lot of people, in particular people in marginalized communities.
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, I constantly, especially because I grew up in such a communal environment, um, you know, in the Philippines, when as soon as I land in the Philippines, I feel the difference, you know, like, I feel that my orientation becomes much more to the community than the individual Um, But I feel the traces of that when I'm here, you know, so I, for instance, since COVID, I've been teaching free workshops every week over Zoom, um, since, you know, for about two months now, and people think I'm a little, you know, unhinged doing that, you know, right before my book launch, but it's the only way that I can actually, I feel like it's the only way that I can survive, not feeling guilty about promoting my book so much is, is actually spending, you know, like, um, allotting a significant amount of time also helping other people. Um, And, and that's something that's really important to me. Um, I, but at the same time, you know, like there's this, there's always this balance, right? Between your desire to help people, but also your own, your own tendencies, your own accumulated talents, your own the things that you like and the things that you don't like, right? Um, I am I am a person that that my husband has called a reclusive extrovert. So I'm I, a very. I
0: relate to that. I relate to that a lot.
1: Yeah, so I'm very outgoing, um, and I'm I'm completely happy being around people. But at the same time, um, it's actually very difficult for me to be. In you know like in in group situations that are that are hard for me to control, and in part because I have a lot of negative reinforcement because of because of my vision, um, because a lot of people perceive me as having normal vision, um, but I can't actually see them. So I people think that I'm a snob, or people think that I've I. I'm not paying attention or people, you know, like people have a lot of perceptions of me in the real world that I don't have to worry about um, when I'm teaching a class on Zoom uh, or when I'm in a, or when I'm giving a lecture, right? Um, So for me, it's been a lot easier just being like, I want to make whatever intellectual resources I have Available to as many people as possible for free, you know that's been that's been that's been a mission of mine for a while. But now, but I think the pandemic has really made that concrete because one of the things that I realize is that is that that's something that I really love and enjoy and have the resources, you know, like find myself with the resources to be able to do, um, and that isn't necessarily. about serving the communities I come from, but it's certainly serving a, a whole other set of communities, right, for whom the accumulated knowledge that I have is inaccessible and the contacts, you know, I have weekly guests who are editors and authors who, you know, who people who are just starting out as writers normally don't have access to or have to pay to access. Um, And that's been really important to me because I have all of this accumulated knowledge that people from my position don't usually have.
0: So I wanna ask you about uh, America, which figured into your life from a young age even when you were in the Philippines and into your imagination and existed as uh, as a place of destination. Uh, because of your it was your maternal grandfather was here is that right
1: yes exactly
0: so you had you had this awareness from a young age and you were also um you know a very curious, very bright child, and you were uh, you know, exploring American pop culture. I, I want to raise my hand as somebody who also watched Silver Spoons as a child. <laughs> <laughs> I can still remember the theme song and, like, you know, right. what, what a wild show. I remember very much envying that train that they had in the house. Yes. Remember that?
1: The train was amazing. Yes. And yeah. the video games. Yeah, yeah. The arcade games. Right. Nice.
0: I was like, man, I want to live in this house. So. Um, you, you know, like, I guess just talk about maybe like your relationship to America as a child in the Philippines and like how it kind of lived in your imagination while there. And then, um, if you could bring us to the move over here and what it was, you were, you were in high school for two years in the Philippines or in, in, uh, in Chino and then off to
1: Harvard. Three years. I was in high school in Chino for three years, um, and was really not, I mean, I don't know if my parents were made aware that we were going to be poor when we moved to the States, <laughs> um, but I was not aware of that, right? You know, so, so my grandparents, my paternal grandparents, by the time that I left, um, were reasonably well off by Filipino standards, not by American standards, Um, And so, and, and I was in this, you know, this wonderful community that I knew so well and this wonderful culture and had all of these friends. And then we moved to this smoggy working class part of California to, you know, like I went to a fourth quartile public school. Um, there were ranches all around us, so you know, like the smell of manure permeated the air all over the place, and um, and yeah. So those early years for me was just like, why, 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 why did this happen? Like, where, where is Ricky Schroeder? Where is he? Um, yeah, and and it's really funny just because I think you know I remember junior year. Or this is a very typical Meredith story, right? Junior year. I was, I was ahead in math and science, I ran out of math and science classes in high school, um, and so I only needed to be in high school until noon, um, and instead of being like a normal kid who would have just been like, yay, I'm, you know, I don't have high school anymore, I enrolled in college classes um, in the afternoons and evenings. Um, But instead of taking more advanced math and science, like I was supposed to, I um, actually, I was not advanced in math, just science um, and a couple of other subjects. But um, but I ended up just taking a bunch of um, English and journalism classes because I it was I had a thick Filipino accent at the time. My grammar wasn't perfect. Um, I was determined to be as American-looking and sounding as possible as soon as possible. Um, and then it was in that context that I made college friends who introduced me to West Hollywood. Um, you know, like where I snuck into clubs at 16. Um, and became you know kind of like more urbane, and that was like the beginning of that. Experience, but then you know. But then I ended up partnered at. I mean, Rafe and I started dating when I was 21. At 21, you know, like I was at Harvard. I was I was at sea. I was very poor. I was, you know, like all of the things. Academically fine, you know, like I always managed out academically. But socially, I was a complete outcast. And then I ended up partnered to somebody with a significant amount of inherited wealth. Um, who has a really high social standing um, was a professor um, in America and you know like comes from this storied family in England um, and that was that was my life you know that was that was those were the um, those were the realities of America that I had to balance so that by the time, You know, by the time I was, you know, I came to the States at 15. By the time I was 23, right, like I was essentially like a partnered condo owner in Boston, you know, in a really expensive city who went to England um, and France on, you know, like several times a year. Um, it, it definitely was a really, really in retrospect was just a really, um, roller coastery trajectory. Well,
0: no, like the word that comes to mind for me is whiplash. Yeah, man. Like that's like quite a, um, quite a lot of ground to cover in a short period of time, like culturally, socioeconomically, educationally, geographically, um, it almost leaves you breathless, and yet, you know I guess when you're living it, it's just your life.
1: well, and I've always I've always been a good code switcher, as you can probably tell by um the accent that people are hearing now, which is not at all my native accent. Um, but when I'm talking to Americans, this is the accent that I have. and when I'm talking to Filipinos, I have a Filipino accent, both in Filipino and English. <laughs> really. Yes, I have a I have a separate accent, which you know, which American friends and and loved ones find very amusing when they hear it. Okay,
0: yeah. so if you if if you if I were Filipino, but we were talking English, how would you sound?
1: Um, it's hard for me to reproduce it without sounding like I'm making fun of Filipino people when I'm talking to an American, but I will try. Um, this is my accent in 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 English when I'm seeking to Filipino people because a lot of Filipino people, they can actually, they actually cannot understand uh, an American accent because American accent sounds strange to them. Oh, so that's an example.
0: Interesting. Wow. So like, yeah, like a chameleon, like a lingual chameleon.
1: Oui, je parle le français aussi. Oh, (laughs) so yes. Um, I actually had this really funny experience where um, I've always had a good ear and I had this really funny experience where I ended up sitting next to a French person on a bus in New York on the way to Queens. So it was like a 45 minute bus ride. We were talking in French the whole time. Um, and then near the end of the conversation, she was just like, oh, where, where are you from in France? And then I said, oh, no, I'm not from France. I learned French in, in, um, in university. And then she said, oh, I see. I was very confused. I thought that you were mentally disabled in some way because, you know, like you speak French with a perfect French accent, but you were making all of these grammatical errors.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So can you do, can you mimic people? Like, are you good at, uh, are you a good mimic?
1: Um, I'm a good I'm a very good accent mimic. Um, I haven't really tried my hand at doing impressions, so I don't know um i I'm not hundred percent sure um, but I suspect that I would be able to do them well um if I studied but um but yeah but i haven't I haven't flexed that specific muscle
0: well in whatever you know some subsequent phase of your career when you're doing stand-up comedy which uh, <laughs> you, know, you can try that one out exactly. <laughs> so i want to talk about um your transition and yes. uh, like it is fascinating and I, I was thinking of it in the context of religion of all things because i was thinking about this concept of rebirth and being born again um like that's the comparison that came to my mind as i was reading uh about the description of uh, existing in the world as a woman and wearing women's clothes and you know, really, you know, changing your identity in this overt way, the way, you know, you appear in the world and having the world react to you as such for the first time as a person who is of adult age. Um, And I I guess I was like, it's something that I hadn't spent a lot of time imagining as like a straight white, you know, guy, but that has got to be Uh, like, uh, like quite a revelation, like quite an exciting experience, like on the level of newness and having um, life feel like a, like a completely new experience. Is that an overstatement of it?
1: No, it's not an overstatement at all. I mean, one of the things that I write in the book is something like within a matter of two or three months, I came, I, I went from being you know, like a, an okay, but relatively ordinary gay man to to somebody who was perceived as an unusually beautiful woman. Um, and that was something that was like, that was definitely just like super, super, um, just, it was just a really heady experience. Um, I think, I, I'm trying to remember who said this. I want to attribute it to... Um, To Nabokov for for reasons that will become obvious when I talk about it, but somebody like that, like a white male writer, said something like, you know, like, you know, young women are the most valued, you know, people in the world, and um, and I do think that to a certain extent that's true, that that you know, like as fraught. As it is, you know being a woman in all of these different ways, um, you know like young women, especially conventionally beautiful young women, are attended to um in a way that is really, really specific, fleeting, but definitely like super super concentrated and one of the things that happens when you take hormones um for the first time is you undergo a second puberty, right, so like your skin your it's just like, it's basically like, it's basically like you become 12 or 13, except that I was in my early 20s at the time. And so, um, there was that period of time when, um, I just remember, it's really funny the things that you remember. I remember really, really clearly, um, going to Tower Records, um, I bought a CD, a Tower Records, back when Tower Records existed and CDs existed, (laughs) Um, and um, and uh, and I didn't like it, so I wanted to return it. Um, But Tower Records has this policy that you know, like once you open a CD, I guess because you can copy it, right? Like they won't allow you to return it. But I was kind of oblivious, and and I went back, and I was you know, like I was trying to return. The CD and this like super super flustered um, guy, um, and I saw his reaction as, like super super flustered, which is like oh you know like normally we don't you know like we don't we don't allow for these returns but you know but for you, um, yeah sure right, um, and I, I I remember that super super clearly just because I think it was the first time and I was just like oh like there's this really weird power associated with with being a young woman um and it's a power that i suddenly have access to right um as somebody who only months before had no proximity to that whatsoever um and you know and in those stages of early transition there were just like a bunch of things that happened to me that i couldn't that were just like really heady, but also just like really difficult to, to sort of like fully understand. Like there were, you know, like I met this guy at a club, you know, like who was just like really into me, um, and then I agreed to, you know, like I decided that I didn't want to see him, and you know, like and I, um, but I decided to like meet up with him anyway, you know, just to say that that's not what I wanted, and he started crying you know, when I said that I didn't want to see him again. um And, you know, and somehow like tr- that was just like beyond the compass of my experience at the time, you know, because I think within the gay community, I was like a slight, not particularly muscular, you know, kind of like strange looking blonde. Yes, you know, great, you know, but not like a particularly attractive guy, Um but as a woman, I was this, you know, like I was a woman with long blonde hair who was unusually thin um, and had like super, super exotic features. And that was very attractive to a lot of men.
0: Hmm. So uh, like being a trans person, you like like something that I think um, many people don't necessarily recognize is how it puts you into a space where you can be sort of receiving fire from like every angle and mm-hmm. the the situation in particular that uh I'm thinking of is the um the realm of feminism and mm-hmm. a- advocating for um you know feminist issues and um equal rights and all the rest but then as a trans person um someone who has transitioned suddenly being, um, you know, ostracized and not welcome by certain subsets of the feminist community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what I'm saying? Like it, just, it struck me when I read that. I was like, oh my God, like, uh, you know, you can't win almost and you have to deal yeah. constantly um, with this issue of belonging. So can you talk a little bit about that particular experience?
1: yeah um it's definitely the case that it's one of the one of the harder things about being trans is that you don't necessarily have a place where you feel like you're absolutely you know free from um you know from people's prejudices and biases um and Even among trans people, right? Like it's it's just a very hard position to be in socially for that reason, including the fact that um, there are there's a significant subset within the quote unquote feminist community um, called trans exclusionary radical feminists, TERFs, um, and they and they consistently talk about me on the internet, um, and. And the really difficult thing, right, is, is having to balance acknowledging and being fully open, um, you know, because my policy is, is well, yes, uh, yes, in fact, I have benefited from male privilege. That is absolutely clear to me, personally. Um, but I also happen to be a trans person who was not significantly dysphoric when i was a man or a boy um there are a lot of trans people for whom the experience of feeling like you don't belong to your own body far outweighs whatever advantages they had number one but also number two um you know i i'm perfectly happy to like do some sort of like you know, some sort of like 13 going on 30 or big swap and, you know, kind of like, let's see which we prefer (laughs) the difficulties of being born and raised um, a girl and then a woman or, you know, or, or transitioning. Right. Um, And I think the, the degree of, you know, the degree of difficulty would be different for different people, but, I don't think that, I think that it's fair to say that they are at least comparable. Um, And so so for me, it has just never made any sense to engage in that sort of like hierarchical bickering around, you know, the creating these hierarchies of oppression among um, minorities. I think it's important to recognize that certain identity positions are on the whole more difficult than others. It is certainly a lot more difficult to be black in America um, than to be any other type of person of color in general, right? But I think that once once you get to the individual level, once you get to actually deciding if this particular person belongs in your particular group, you, you're, it's, it doesn't make any sense to actually say, Oh, like this, this person, because they belong to this group and they haven't experienced as much oppression as we have, like then, then, then they don't belong. Right. Um, and, and that I think is, is part of the, part of the difficulty of, Um, engaging with um, trans exclusionary radical feminists Mm. yeah i mean i i I,
0: like at the level of just like very basic identity i sort of get it like i sort of get how like obviously like if um, a group of african americans are wanting to congregate um just as an example And if I were Mm -hmm. to show up and be like, Hey guys, you know, like I'm with you, you know, or something, they might be like, actually this is a, you know, we're doing this because you know, this is something to do with, uh, you know, our racial identity, but at the level of like political action or at the level of advocacy to be exclusionary, um, when someone is in good faith, um, wanting to help the cause, you know, that's where I find myself being like, Oh, you know, like that's, that's rough um you know when somebody right. is coming coming with a positive vibe and wanting to be a part of something that's helpful but is like shunned because of um you know not ticking every box like uh, perfectly or something that that to me is where things get sticky
1: when the thing is you know it it really does benefit cisgender women to be around trans women and to learn things about manhood and boyhood that they wouldn't otherwise learn, you know, because, because men are, you know, are actually, it's not, it's not even that they're intentionally, um, you know, that they intentionally hoard um, information about themselves. Um, although some of them do, but I do think that there is like a really particular and special way that that trans women have insights about how manhood and patriarchy operates because because we've been on both sides of that coin right like i i very much you know um when i was executive editor at them that was something that i that i very not much noticed about myself was that oh like i understand how gender is operating in all of these group situations (laughs) in ways that other people don't, you know, like I see that when, you know, that when the, the man who is, you know, in the sort of like hierarchy of the organization lower than the woman, but keeps talking over the woman, I can see that that would never happen in the reverse. Right. Right. Um, And, 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 or more easily, I guess. Um, And so, yeah, so yes, that doesn't make sense. And yet at the same time, the thing that I would want to also say is that these situations are are super, super thorny. I mean, I don't know if you remember Rachel Dolezal. I mean, that was an entire whole situation of a white person identifying as black. and those issues are super, super complicated. I completely agree that given the racial dynamics, the makeup, the history of slavery, et cetera, et cetera you know, the concept of, of a white person being integrated as a black person, a white person who feels themselves to be black, being integrated into, into blackness is like way way different than um than a trans person being a trans woman being integrated among cis women but it's also important to know to note that both of those structures are socially constructed they're just socially constructed in entirely different ways right um and they have entirely different histories mm.
0: So, what are you working? I mean, you got the book obviously out into the world, um, Mm -hmm. but like, what are what else you got going on, work wise? Um, I know you're teaching these workshops. Um, Are you working on a a subsequent book?
1: Yes, I am. Well, you know, like after this period when I am, um, you know, when I'm talking to a lot of people about Ferris, I am planning to pick um, my novel back up. I'm working on a novel right now, um, and um, and also and also as more of a side project, I'm also been I've also just been collecting my essays because I've written so many of them. Um, so I want to do an essay collection just because, you know, one of the things that I realized, you know, like I just like looked up one day and was just like, you know, you know, I started writing about trans issues in 2014. Um, And I've been consistently doing that for the past six years. Um, And that also happens to be the period when, you know, when like trans consciousness in the United States has really, you know, just sort of like taken hold and blossomed, right. And so, um, and so I'm really interested in collecting my essays so that, you know, hopefully people in the future can have a snapshot of this particular moment because they think, I do think that it's really important and consequential.
0: Well, it's been uh, such a pleasure to talk with you, uh, you know, over the transom and uh, I want to congratulate you on not just the book um, and the success in getting it published and getting it out there, but also just more broadly in all of the journalism um, that you've done and uh, I guess the novel that you're writing—I don't know if it deals with issues along these lines—but um, uh, just a lot, a lot of great stuff going on, and a lot of important work. And I congratulate you.
1: Thank you so much. And and you—you you started in midstream, so you didn't give me an opportunity to to tell you that I'm also a big fan of yours and have been listening to your podcast for years. Um, and, that in fact, I contacted you on those terms because I'm on your, on your, um, I'm on your mailing list.
0: So, well, there we go. I appreciate it. And, uh, it's just, I hope at some point we get to meet in person when all of this uh, craziness is over with
1: that. That would be really fantastic. I've been, I've been, I've been looking forward to that with a lot of people.
0: Well, uh thank you so much again and uh stay well and uh best of luck on everything.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Okay, that is Meredith Teleusen. Her memoir is called fairest. It is available now from Viking. You can find Meredith online at mteleosen.com. She's on Instagram, she's on Facebook, her Twitter handle is at one demerith. That is the number one D-E-M-E-R-I-T-H. At One Demerith The book once again is called Ferrist. It is a memoir available now from Viking. Go get your copy immediately Do it now The Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show, more than 650 episodes and counting are all offered freely. It's a listener supported program. Your support makes a difference If you like the show, support the show tip your server you can do that at patreon.com slash other patreon.com slash other ppl if you would like to write to me if you have thoughts on the show or you want to share a story you can email me at letters at other ppl.com letters at other this program has its own official app the other people with brad listy app it's free it's a free app it is available wherever apps are available go get the app it's a good app I forgot to tell you guys to uh, take care of your pets over the 4th. Though I feel like a lot of fireworks uh, demonstrations are canceled, are they not? I think that's what's happening in Los Angeles. I don't know. I'm sure the rest of the country is proceeding. But we had to cancel ours. I just remember last year (laughs) sort of foolishly taking my dog out on the 4th, and she freaked out. She didn't like it. My wife was scolding me. I thought she was going to be fine. She's like a pretty chill dog, but... She did not like uh big fireworks. I don't even know why I'm saying this, because it's the fifth of July when this when this episode airs. But you know what I mean. So it's summertime. Does it feel like summertime? Does anything feel normal right now? I don't think anything feels normal right now. Everything's just sort of weird. We're in a weird phase. This is a weird time to be a human on Earth. But we're all in it together, are we not? Let's uh let's wear masks and take care of each other. Let's be nice. Let's be nicer than we normally are. Can we do that? Can we be nicer Okay.